But this morning, I want to build upon a little bit, if you will, um, what I shared with you last week. In particular, my favorite phrase in all of the Bible. If you were here, we looked at Romans chapter 16, and essentially it was a list of a bunch of names that Paul was sending greetings to, and we said a few things about these many, many servants of the Lord, that number one, they come in all shapes and sizes, that in that list of names, we had men and women, marrieds and singles, older in the Lord, younger in the Lord, Jews and Gentiles, some well-known, some not so well-known, but all of them seemingly faithfully serving the Lord Jesus. And we just noted the manifold grace of God, that he doesn't just save all sorts of people, but he puts all sorts of people into his service. Secondly, we said that servants of the Lord express their service in numerous ways. And we looked at some of the words that Paul used to describe how these wonderful saints were serving the Lord. And then finally, we said that servants of the Lord are wrapped up. I think that's the way I put it in Jesus. And, and I might have been stretching it a little bit. I think I admitted that. But that little phrase, in the Lord Jesus, or in Christ Jesus, or in Christ, that these men and these women were following Jesus and serving Jesus in Jesus. And so I said, maybe there's a handful of things that are meant by that because of Jesus' passion. Because Jesus suffered and died in our place and for our sins, we serve him and his people. In his power, Jesus said that apart from me, you can do nothing, but if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. For his people, we noted, I believe it was Phoebe who did her work for the church. And Ananias and Sapphira risked their lives for Paul. And one of the other brothers was serving for them. That Christ's servants not only served because of his passion and in his power, but for his people. And for his purposes, evangelism, discipleship, church planting, and the like, fueled by his promises, like 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul, at the end of his life, encouraging and calling Timothy up, reminded him that in the future there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me, but not only to me, Paul said, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That there are incredible promises for those who follow Jesus and serve him, his people, and his purposes. And then finally, motivated or sustained by his presence. When I quoted a particular passage and said, it contains my favorite verse in all the Bible. So I want to look at that, not just that phrase, but that passage this morning, say a few things about it, and hopefully send us on our way encouraged, comforted, and strengthened. 
you have a Bible, turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. It's the first book in the New Testament, and this will be the last chapter of this first book. And we'll be in verses 18 to 20. If you're familiar, you know that this is often referred to as the great commission. And I'm going to maybe push a little bit, but not so much. I, I just, I want to assume this morning that all of us are engaged in the Great Commission, which we'll see is make disciples. That you and I are not only joyfully following Jesus, but helping others do the same. That we realize, as we looked at last week briefly, when I quoted from 1 Timothy chapter 1, that not only was I a sinner who has been saved and strengthened by Jesus, but I've also been put into service. I want to assume that every one of us in here who calls Jesus Lord are doing that, looking to make disciples, looking to serve his people and for his purposes. But the question for all of us, I think, is what will sustain us as we do so? What will keep us going as we serve the Lord? What will strengthen us, comfort us, encourage us, help us as we seek not only to follow Jesus, but also to help others do the same? In verses 18, 19, and 20, we're going to see the great claim, the great commission, and the great comfort. The great claim first in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, Now, this comes at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. In the story, Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, has given his life upon a cross to pay the penalty for his people's sins, and he has been raised victoriously from the dead. He has yet to ascend into heaven and sit down at his Father's right hand. He is making himself known as the risen Lord to his disciples. And these are his final words, at least those recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And as I've said before, last words are lasting words. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That word all in some ways dominates these few verses. All authority. Make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you and you all the days. All authority, Jesus says. His authority has already been stressed by Matthew throughout the gospel, even during Jesus' time upon the earth. In chapter 7, verse 29, Matthew speaks of his authoritative teaching. 
And in chapter 10, his authority given to his disciples to cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers. It seems certainly alluded to in chapter 22 when Jesus quoted this psalm that spoke of him putting his enemies underneath his feet. And in chapter 24, his claim that his words will not pass away. So his authority throughout the book and throughout his time upon the earth has been stressed. But what seems to be in play here is an authority now, given the fact that he has come humbly and served, if you will, in weakness and suffered and died in the place of sinners but now has been raised victoriously, vindicated with his exaltation to the Father's right hand just around the corner, that his authority now extends not only on the earth, but all authority given to me in heaven and on earth. D.A. Carson just said it like this. It's not Jesus' authority per se that becomes more absolute, Rather, the spheres in which he now exercises absolute authority are enlarged to include all heaven and earth, i.e., the universe. Jesus, our risen, exalted Savior, is Lord over all. All authority has been given to him and It seems to me, therefore, excuse me, that we are to listen carefully to whatever is about to come out of his mouth. He reigns. He rules. He's the Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given by the Father to him. And so he's about to speak. These are sad illustrations, but I thought, you know, school's about to start back, and um, Molly, our middle one's about to start high school. A couple weeks ago, she kind of threw out there, we were talking about the football team and football managers, you know, some of the students who come along and they, they help with this, that, or the other, and Molly was like, what do you think about me being a football manager? I said, baby, you don't want to be a football manager for the Katie Tigers. Coach Joseph runs a hard ship early in the morning, staying late into the evening, and they go all the way to the end. It would be a long fall. She's like, okay, I won't do it. (laughs) What happens when Coach Joseph walks up to the Katy Tiger football team? You think they just looking around, picking their nose? Or do you think they snap to attention? All eyes, all ears. Here's the sad illustration. Because Coach Joseph has all authority in heaven and on earth at Katy High School. Or Coach Saban for the Alabama Crimson Tide. When he walks up, those players aren't picking their nose, looking around, talking to each other, and cutting jokes. 
And he walks up, they listen. Here is our Lord. All authority. Risen. Vindicated. Exalted. He's speaking to us. And so here now is the Great Commission. Verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. It is often said, and rightly so, there's only one main verb here and three participles that go along with it. The main verb is make disciples. Make disciples. I have come and lived and died and risen. I'm alive forevermore, about to be exalted to the Father's right hand from which I will reign until I come again. Between now and then, here's what I want my people to be about. Make disciples. This is so good for me to hear. Because it is so easy to get distracted with other things. In many ways, this is like a compass for the church, right? Wait a minute. Where is true north? Oh, yeah. What do you want us doing now, Lord? Oh, yeah. You want us to glorify you by making disciples of any and everybody. Through evangelism, sharing the good news of the gospel, win people to faith in Jesus Christ, and then strategically follow up with them to teach them and equip them to obey Jesus Christ and make disciples themselves. Question I ask myself, I want to ask you, are you making the disciples. Now, I started the sermon with a huge assumption. I want to assume that all of us are in one way or another, but maybe all of us need to recalibrate to this, to be reminded what the final words of Jesus were before he ascended into heaven. Make disciples. Make disciples. Make disciples. Maybe it's teaching in those kids' classes. And I know Katie, she, you know, I gave her the mic. And she could have done it, but she didn't. She needs more folks. Do you realize that during the 9.15 hour, we've got a Sunday school class that has K, first, second, and third graders in it? There's like 20 of them. And I told her, I want you to take a picture of the classroom because it's packed over there. 
Well, why don't we split them between K and first, second, third? That'd be easy enough. You guess. Are there any of you who would say, boy, I would, I'd love an opportunity with some little K and first graders or second and third graders to be on a rotation where I could teach them about Jesus and help them follow him. That would be just one way we could do it. Or it's leading groups with our students or leading a community group or it's meeting with people over a cup of coffee and helping them and encouraging them to follow Jesus. But verse 19 begins with go. Go therefore. And it's a participle. And so some have thought, you know, maybe it should be translated as you go. Make disciples. But it's interesting, and I looked at it again this morning. Virtually every translation has it as an imperative. Go and make disciples. Even though it's not strictly a command. But I read a guy this week that was very, very helpful, and this is a little bit in the weeds, but you'll, you'll catch on. When a, partis, when a particle, participle functions as a circumstantial participle dependent on an imperative, y'all in? It frequently gains some imperatival force, command force. So it is a participle as you're going, but it's connected to a clear command, make disciples. When it comes like that, oftentimes in the Greek language, it carries an imperative, a command force. Second reason, while it remains true to say that the main imperatival force rests with make disciples, not with go, in a context that demands this ministry extend to all nations, it's difficult to believe that go has no command force. And then number three, other places where the Great Commission is set forth in other Gospels, in the book of Acts, the idea of go is implied. All of that to say, brothers and sisters, followers of Jesus, our Lord is speaking to you and to me and he says to you and to me, go, live with a sense of sentness by Jesus Christ. Every single one of us who name Christ as Lord and Savior have been sent by him into the world. Leslie Newbigin wrote, the church is sent into the world to continue that which Jesus came to do in the power of the same spirit, reconciling people to God. No one can say, since I'm not being called to be a missionary, I do not have to evangelize my friends and neighbors. There is no difference in spiritual terms between a missionary witnessing in his hometown and a missionary witnessing in Kathmandu, Nepal. We are called to go, even if it is only to the next room or the next block. 
does that shape your sense of identity at all? That you are a sent one. Could say that each and every one of us, we want to be careful that we don't water down what cross-cultural missionaries do, but, but all of us missionaries entrusted with the good news of the gospel and sent go and make disciples of all the nations. The aim of Jesus is to make disciples of all people everywhere without distinction. And he mentions a couple of things here that characterize disciple-making. Implied is the preaching of the gospel, the proclaiming of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel, and seeing people respond in repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. But then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're good Baptists around here. We believe that baptism is for a person after they have believed in Jesus, they then get baptized. Not in order to be saved, but because they are saved. To publicly proclaim to all that they have died with Christ, been raised with him to walk in newness of life. They are committing their life to follow the one who died and rose on their behalf. And so, when a person is led to faith in Jesus Christ, they are then baptized. Actually, next Sunday, we're going to have, it looks like, two baptisms and maybe some more to follow a bit later in the fall, which is really exciting. If you or someone in your family has put their faith in Jesus Christ but has not yet then been baptized, we would love to talk about that. Let us know. But then not only baptizing, also teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. We're not meant to simply leave a young follower of Jesus in infancy but to follow up with them and teach them and train them and help them to follow Jesus and to make disciples. William Hendrickson, in his commentary in the book of Matthew, I read a handful of commentators this week. He's the only one who really built out this idea of teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. He said this, think of all of Christ's marvelous discourses. So he's thinking of those things like the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Or when Jesus sent out those first disciples on their, if you will, first missionary trip in, in Matthew chapter 10, and he gave them instructions and taught them what to expect. Or maybe the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13, or the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. All of, the, all of Christ's marvelous discourses. Secondly, all of his parables, including ever so many commands, whether implied or expressed. And so we're going to look at some of the parables of Jesus this fall. 
He said, there's also those precious sayings such as, abide in me, love each other, love your enemies, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. He said, there's then the specific predictions and promises or assurances. Jesus said, he who comes to me will in no way get hungry and he who believes in me will in no way be thirsty. Or when Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good courage, I have conquered the world. He said, add to this the lessons on the cross, hypocrisy, proclaiming the gospel, prayer, humility, trust, the forgiving spirit. And is not even the narrative of Christ's sojourn on earth, the account of his healing and traveling, suffering, death, resurrection, etc., full of implied commands, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. What an order. First of all, for the 11 and for all ordained teachers, but certainly in a sense also for the entire church, the whole membership. Every member is a witness bearer. That the church is to be about making disciples and part of that process is to teach the followers of Jesus what it looks like to obey his teaching. John Piper wrote a book several years ago called What Jesus Demands from the World. He took it from this phrase, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And so he then set out from the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, to glean everything that Jesus commanded of his followers. And he organized it and did a wonderful job writing this book, What Jesus Demands from the World. I, he must have got a little, maybe not pushback, but, but a little bit of encouragement. They just republished this book under a different title. The new title is All That Jesus Commanded, The Christian Life according to Jesus. Well, that's the Great Commission. We've seen the Great Claim, the Great Commission, and now the Great Comfort, my favorite phrase in all the Bible. Lo, behold, don't forget, I am with you all the days even to the end of the age. Jesus, we have promises elsewhere of the Lord our God and he is with us, will never leave us nor forsake us. Here we have a promise, and there's, if you will, a little bit of debate. One said it like this, if not made explicitly conditional on the disciples' obedience to the Great Commission, it is at least closely tied to it. The, the idea being that this promise of Jesus' presence to his followers is, is tied to as they go and make disciples. 
As you and I serve the Lord and his people, Jesus will be with us every step of the way. He'll be with us every step of the way. This is pretty neat too. Keep your finger on Matthew 28 and go all the way back to Matthew chapter 1. You'll remember the angel appears to Joseph to tell him about this child that Mary's going to have. Verse 18 of chapter 1, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, took to himself humanity in the virgin womb of his mother, Mary. Suvathi read it earlier. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The angel said, God with us. The book opens up with that. And then the book closes with that that this one who came, God with us in the flesh, who then died upon a cross and rose from the dead and who will soon ascend into heaven, is going to send his spirit and he, through his spirit, will be with us to the end of the age. Can I hear an amen? Amen. Oh, I want to make disciples. I want to serve the Lord and his people. I know you and I do, but sometimes we get afraid. Sometimes we don't think enough of ourselves or in so many ways. I'm not enough. I can't do this. If you know the stories throughout the Old Testament of people that God called to do something wonderful and time and time and time and time again, they said, who am I? I can't do it. And God said, I will be with you. He said it to Moses. He said it to Gideon. He said it to Jeremiah. He said it to the returned remnant after they had come back from exile and God was calling them to rebuild his temple and they were so scared and so insecure about it. Moses called by God, Gideon called by God, Jeremiah called by God, 
Uh, Joshua, it's implied in his calling. Me? But I can't. And God says, I will be with you. I'm calling you to do it. I'll help you do it. I will comfort you, strengthen you, sustain you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As you serve the Lord and his people and his purposes this year, if you grow afraid, if you grow insecure, if the enemy uses any thought or whatever to discourage you, to trip you up, to keep you out of the game or to, to tempt you to get out of the game, remember this promise. Don't forget this promise. Our Lord, risen, exalted, ruling, sovereign, in heaven and on earth, said, I will be with you. You will not be alone. I'll be with you. I do want to take this opportunity, brief commercial. For many, many years, we've had what we called our Friday morning men's Bible study, and we just changed the name. And it was funny, Friday I passed out some deals and I had Bible study crossed out. And I said, don't worry. But we changed it, men's Friday, mor Friday morning men's discipleship training. We're going to do something different on Friday mornings. And I know that's impossible for some of you, some of you men. But if you like what you hear, other D groups can form at other times rather than just Friday morning. But so far, 26 men have said, put me in a Friday morning D group. This year, we're not going to go through other books of the Bible like we have done in the past. We're going to do this book right here. It's called Discipleship Essentials. In one week, we're going to meet as a large group, and we're going to hear a testimony from a man. We're going to do some training in discipleship, and we're going to we're going to teach a little bit on the particular lesson. And then all the guys are going to go home and they're going to work through the lesson. And the next Friday morning, we're going to get together in our D groups. These are groups of three or four men. And, and together, by the grace of God, they're going to have a wonderful time growing in the Lord as they mutually encourage one another and challenge one another and the like. These men are going to memorize 25 verses over the next year. Don't tell them. But it's not 25. It's actually 55. Because some of them are like Psalm 1, 1 to 3, or Matthew 28, 18 to 20. 55 verses over the next 12 months. Growing as followers of Jesus Christ, and then one of the neat things about these D groups is there'll be a primary leader of the group and he'll lead the first few of them, but then after that, the leadership rotates. 
so that over the course of the year, every man in that group has an opportunity to lead the D group four, maybe five times. And so it's not only a tool that's helping us grow as followers of Jesus, but hopefully it's, it's training us with skills to disciple others as well. Men, I know y'all are busy. I know it's impossible for some. But if you could make it happen, come join us on Friday mornings. Come be a part of one of these D groups that has as its aim not only to help us follow Jesus, but also equip us to help others do the same, to be disciples who make disciples. If you say, man, that sounds great. I'd love to be in one of those groups, but I can't do Friday morning. Let us know about that also. And we'll see if some other D groups can't come together at a time other than Friday morning. You guessed it. You can read about it, and you can sign up at RedeemerCommunity.life. Brothers and sisters, in light of the cross, the empty tomb, the triumphant vindication and exaltation of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. As you serve the Lord and his purposes this year, remember that Jesus is right by your side. What did Martin Luther teach us to sing in the midst of our fight We're not the right man on our side. Our striving would be losing. But we've got the right man by our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. We've got the right man on our side. We're done singing this morning, so I'm going to pray, and then we'll close with our benediction. Let's pray. Father in heaven, if there's any here today who have never made the decision to follow Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, to become a Christian, to become a disciple of Jesus, might you bring them to that decision even now. Help them to see your greatness and your glory and your perfection and your holiness. Help them to see their sin, their rebellion, They're falling short of the glory of God. Show them their need, that they desperately need forgiveness and a new kind of life. And help them to see you've provided it in your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lived a holy life they could not live and then died upon a cross to pay the penalty for their sins. 
whom you raised from the dead, who is alive today. And to any and all who will humbly come to him, he will forgive them. He will adopt them into his family. He will come to them through the Spirit of God and give them the promise of eternal life. And Lord, those of us who, who follow Christ, would you spur us on and sustain us with this incredible comfort of your presence. Pray, Father, that you would provide for K first, second, third grade back there, as well as any other holes we might have in our ministry. But then, Lord, would you just help us all be looking for opportunities that we can help others follow Jesus. And we'll pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.